Psalm 100. The psalmist writes, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. And he, it, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And his faithfulness is to all generations. Well, let's pray. Our glorious God, we come to you in the midst of our week full of so many ordinary tasks, things that we have to give our attention to if we are to be uh, faithful workers, uh, diligent, if we're to be students, if we're to be parents or friends, even just church members. So many things that call for our attention, but we want to, for a short time, set them aside and turn our hearts toward you. We want to see something of your greatness. We want to see the path of worship so that we can put our feet on that path more consistently. God, we hope in you. In the work that you begin, you are the author of our faith, not us. And we're grateful, God, because you know that we would have been addicted to the deceit of sin, promising that we could remain the center of the universe. But you opened our eyes and you freed our hearts and you broke the chain on our will so that we could understand and delight in and pursue you. Now, God, we hope in you as the finisher of our faith. There are so many steps between where we're at and where we one day will end up. And Lord, whether those steps are comprised months and years or whether believers here have decades to live, until we see you face to face, we pray that you would work in and sustain our souls so that we can live on what's real and we can be supported by clinging to what doesn't go up and down. You are the rock in the midst of our tossing ocean. So God, we hold on while we are being held by you. We pray that you would stoop down again and as the only God that speaks, you would teach your children again from your word so that we might see correctly and not with the warped lens of legalism and bribes, but with the lens of Christ, the path of love and of worship. So help us, God. The things we have been talking about go against everything that is natural to us. To live for someone other than us is so foreign. But you have conquered our hearts. And so, God, having not seen Christ, we do love him. And our love, as imperfect as it is, every Christian can say, it's real. 
So help us. We ask it in Christ's name and for Christ's honor. Amen. Well, I want us to look again at the theme of worship. And so, last, uh, sa- last Sunday, last Sunday, we started to look at the theme of worship as a thing that I- includes all of life, and not just, um, you know, Sunday services. It's very easy to um, inappropriately limit worship to Sundays and gathering with believers. And even when we think about Sundays and gathering with believers, it's easy to limit worship to uh, the song part of the service. But we started last Sunday to see that worship really is for the believer in the new covenant. It's something that spreads out to touch every area of life. And that really is, it's just one of the many ways that we see the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant Though the old covenant flows into the new, it's not as if we have two different gods, two different Bibles. But the new covenant is the flowering of all the root system and the stems of the old. But one of the distinctions between the new and the old is is this whole issue of liberty and fullness. If you think about worship in the Old Testament... God gave so much detail, and that was a gracious thing, so that they could come to the true God, and not a God they've imagined. And they could come to the true God in a way that was life-giving, and not in a way that was, you know, destructive. But if you think about Old Testament worship, one of the things that ought to come to your mind frequently is the issue of restraint, or restriction, or limitations. You could only go so far if you, uh, in the worship you know, into the temple, even physically, if you were a woman. You could go a little further if you were a man. You could only go so far if you were a man, but not a priest. And the priest could only go so far. And then you have the, the high priest, and he could go so far. And then one day a year, he could go all the way. And so we have all these restrictions. But in the new covenant, the veil is torn, and all the Christian life can be lived, in a sense, in the holy place with God by faith, constantly able to cultivate communion, that transaction between the uncreated being and us through the finished work of his son, that he is giving and we are depending and receiving and returning our gratitude and our love. And in that, there is no restriction. There's no special places. You know, there's no limitation to certain days or certain people, certain, uh, you know, gender there is such a wonderful lack of restraint or freedom. So worship is not merely something that occurs within the temple, but worship is, as Clyde described it in his book, it's simply a humble preoccupation with God. It's the awareness of God's worth in a way that bows the heart and then moves us to do what we're doing in a Godward way or aimed at God, and not just at an employer, at a teacher, at a parent, or for ourselves. Romans 12, 1 and 2, at the end of 11 chapters of doctrine, where Paul spells out in a way that no other portion of Scripture can compare, he spells out the fullness, the, 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 it's not just the big picture, it's the details of man's need and God's provision and how that comes to us and how God is just, 
and the fullness of that and how it transforms our legal standing before God in a way that is irreversible. And these great objective truths are laid before us like pillars, one after the next, like flagstones that we stand on no matter what the storm. And then Paul also describes how God works within us. And we recognize that as believers, that there is something occurring within. There's a transforming work. There's the new birth. There's sanctification. And Paul answers questions about God's integrity and his promises, particularly with the Jews in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Is God as good as you say he is? Is his gospel is trustworthy. After all, many of the Jews have rejected the Messiah. And Paul explains why. It, God has not failed. Uh, there is a misunderstanding uh, among many of the Jews at that time of who really is a child of Abraham. Paul spells all that out. And then at the end of the 11th chapter, he bursts out and prays to God this doxology. You know, now to him. All things by him, from him, through him, for him. It's all for him. And that's wonderful, but it would only remain a concept in our mind and it may be something we appreciate in our souls if we didn't have chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 where Paul begins and says, therefore, because of everything I've said, not just the end of chapter 11, everything, I urge you by the mercies, by these kindnesses, let that fuel the engine of your heart to... Devote yourself as a living sacrifice to present your day in and day out moments, the hours of your week as a living sacrifice to God. Not the kind of sacrifice that pays for sin, the kind of sacrifice that is, a, you know, a thanksgiving offering. It, it's, to, it's to express our love back to the God that has made us his. Now, because of Romans 12, 1 and 2, we see that all of life in the, for the Christian has the potential of being worship. It doesn't mean just because you're a Christian, everything you do is worship. But it does mean there's the potential. So I want us to kind of hone in on that again. And I want us to look at some principles that are involved, or maybe we would say ingredients. Ingredients of a life that is worship. And then I want us to look at those specific examples that I mentioned Sunday, but we didn't have time to look at. So the ingredients, the fundamentals, all right? We mentioned last Sunday that the one that worships the Lord has to be one who knows the Lord through Jesus Christ. Paul says, you know, we are the true Jews, are the true children of God, circumcised hearts. Worship God in the spirit, but, you know, by Christ's spirit stirring our hearts. And then he says, and we boast in Christ. We value Christ above everything. Wonderful, simple description of a Christian. It is impossible for an unbeliever to offer worship to God that is pleasing to him. Because it comes from a source that is itself still polluted. It is impossible to imagine an unbeliever coming to God and the unbeliever who is, you know, primarily, you, if you are a believer, you can remember the days you weren't. And as an unbeliever, you might have been very religious and offered a lot of things up in religion, but God did not accept any of them because they were imperfect. 
because they were flawed, twisted. But I think really at the heart of it because they weren't really offered to God at all. Can an unbeliever who's distinguished by his being impressed and aware of his own self-importance, how can that person ever really turn from self and offer God anything? So in religion, prior to God conquering your heart, it's really whatever you're offering in church, it's really not being offered to God. It's really being offered In a sense, it's a bribe. It's something you hand to God so that he will hand you back something better. So religion prior to true conversion is really all about you. Worship is really all about God. So we talked about this Sunday. We won't, you know, uh, go over the points again and again, but... It is the heart of a believer that can bring worship through Christ. And that's connected with the issue of holiness. Psalm 29, verse 2. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. The psalmist writes, worship the Lord in the beauty of, and we know that, of holiness. A Christian doesn't just worship the Lord in a way that's clean. So clean up your life, you know. Don't, Don't... Don't offer God something that's sinful. It's not just holiness in the sense of purity. It's holiness in the sense of separation. Worship the Lord in the awareness that you aren't what you once were. You have been separated unto him, purchased, brought near to God through Christ. And now belonging to him, owning to him, uh, being, being owned by him, separated unto him, Now, what you do in light of that can be worship. I'm not waking up to live for myself. I don't belong to myself anymore. I belong to God. I am rightfully his. He's purchased me. Therefore, whether I live or die, I'm the Lord's. So that changes how I live at church, but it changes how I live at home and at work, school, play. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness in the realities, in the beauties of being separated unto him, as well as in ways that are pure and pleasing. Another ingredient in worship is love. Doing a common task, but now this common task has an uncommon object or goal. It used to have Self as the goal. Now, as I mentioned, it has God as the goal. So worship really at the heart of much of worship is the answer to this question. For whom are you doing whatever you're doing? Whether you're driving down the street, getting dressed, eating breakfast, you know, coming to church, singing, praying, preaching, teaching Sunday school. It doesn't matter. Whatever thing you're doing, you can ask the simple question, for whom do I do this? Now, there are immediate objects of our actions. So for example, a mom might, uh, a child, you know, she hears the the scream of the two-year-old. The two-year-old has, you know, run around the corner and run right into a piece of furniture and the kid's laying flat with an egg on their forehead and screaming bloody murder. And the mom rushes and picks up the child and comforts the child. Well, she does it for love of the child. But in the big picture, she also does it ultimately 
for love of God. I want to be the right kind of mother because the God that I belong to has entrusted me with this. When Paul talks about going to work in Ephesians chapter five, 6, verse 5, he says this, slaves, and we could apply that to employees. You might feel that there, it's a short step from slave to employee in your case, but employees, all right? Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. So you have people who are your boss according to the flesh, all right? They're in charge of what you do with your body 40 hours a week. Be obedient to them, Paul says, with fear and trembling, okay? Take it seriously in the sincerity of your heart, not, okay, not a, a, a hypocritical, you know, obedience to the boss, not doing what the boss asks uh, on the surface so that you appear to be a really good employee, but do it sincerely. That's a command. That's the only path for the Christian employee. And then he's, he kind of changes our focus and he says, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. So not as to the employer? Well, no, not ultimately. The next verse, Ephesians 6, verse 6 says, not by way of eye service, just doing it for what people see to appear. As men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God, and he's talking about your work, doing the will of God. God's will is that you would be the best employee, that, you know, that your work ethic would match your, your profession. Doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service. With good will at work, render service to your employer. With good will. Don't just appear to be a hard worker. Be a sincerely hard worker. Do your best. And when you do it, no complaining, no griping, no saying, oh, if only I had a Christian boss, I'd be different. No, it doesn't matter. Pagan, Christian, cruel, unfair, fair, kind. You have a boss. Do your best. Do it with good will. Why? Well, then again, he says, rendering service, rendering uh, with good will, render service as to the Lord, not to men. So while the boss, the, the company, the employer is the immediate focus, I want to do what my employer has asked with a, with a whole heart because I'm a Christian. I want to represent Christ correctly. But ultimately, it is not for the pleasure of the employer, and it's certainly not to just appear to be a good employee, but I do what I do regardless of the employer because the employer is not the ultimate goal of my actions but God. So you see this all through the Bible. One example, of course, Daniel. Daniel works his entire adult life for a pagan king, an idol worshiper, an idol promoter. In Babylon, Daniel always works, always works for a pagan. And yet Daniel, you can see in that life there, the integrity, and you see the respect that he's earned. But ultimately, he's doing it for God. So what does it matter if the present employer, if the present king, if the 
present foreman on the job is a jerk, dishonest, or a wonderful Christian. I mean, obviously it affects our days, but we do it for love of the Lord. Another ingredient is gratitude. Psalm 100 I just read. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. All through the Bible, it doesn't surprise us to read any psalm that speaks of worship and it includes thanks. And we just, it's so expected, you might not notice it, but I think that it's an important element because when we talk about doing everything as unto the Lord, it's going to include being aware of God's worth, but it's also going to include love to God and gratitude. So why do you do what you do in a way that's different than a lost person does what they do? Why do you work hard? The lost person may work just as hard, but you have a different motive. Ultimately, it's love to God. Ultimately, there's gratitude that God has given me this opportunity. I remember in seminary, a guy preaching a sermon in sermon class, all right? So we studied about how to approach a text, and then we had to preach a sermon or a couple of sermons over the semester. We had preached sermons in front of all the students and be, as soon as you were done, you sat down and the professor got up and the whole group critiqued you, which I thought was horrible. You know, I, I wanted to just run to the bathroom and never come back out. But so I remember a guy and he was uh, preaching a sermon and he was complaining about his employer and, you know, and the job that he had while he was trying to work his way through school. Of course, it wasn't, you know, the job that he wanted the rest of his life. Maybe it was manual labor. Maybe it was in the middle of the night. Complain, complain. And when he sat down, one of the students got up and rightly critiqued that attitude and said, why do you not look at your job with gratitude, even though it's hard or unpleasant, but because you know that God has given you that, why not be grateful why not have a totally different attitude? Anyone that met that young man might not have thought very much of the gospel. And the final ingredient, humility. It is impossible for a proud person to be gripped by God's worth because we're gripped by our worth. It is impossible for a proud person to offer something to God with self-forgetfulness. No, it's always a boomerang. It's always something that it looks like we're giving to someone else, but really it's always geared to come back to us. And from Genesis to Revelation, God delights in the humble. I don't have to give you a number of verses because you remember that one of the definitions of worship was to bow, the bowed heart. Why do I work the way I work? Why do I do my schoolwork the way I do my schoolwork? Why, why do I relate to people in the home the way I do? It ought to be, as a Christian, not primarily because of the kind of people you live with or work with or go to school with, but ultimately the God that has loved you and you are glad to be nothing so that God might be seen to be everything. You're glad to decrease, that Christ might increase in, in your life, in your testimony. Less of you being seen, more of Christ shining through. And again, so whatever you're doing, the awareness of the God, the King that we're serving when we're picking up you know, our clothes and taking them to the, you know, to the laundry room, 
that God sees it. And it's not that clothes are that important. It's that God is that important. And we are glad to bow the heart and do the menial task this week. Uh, Teddy and I filmed a couple podcasts. And on this podcast, I think he was guilty of a grievous error. He said, you know, John, it's like when I fold clothes. I just interrupted him on the podcast and said, Teddy, I don't believe this story. All right. If you tell me you're running, exercising for a marathon or folding clothes, I'm not going to believe either of those. He tells me it's true. Allison, is it true? Okay. He's paid her off. She says it's true. Maddox, is it true? Where's Maddox? Is it true? Does your dad? Yeah, I see your hand. Does your dad fold clothes? Okay. Actually, he told me a story about Maddox having feeling that Maddox needed to instruct his dad on folding clothes. So, so TJ folds clothes. Is it because Allison is like hard on him or is it love for her and love for God and humility? A humble person doesn't even think, wow, I was really humble when I took that job, you know, when I folded those clothes. <laughs> Misty has to remind me that I don't get a blue ribbon just because I do something that she normally does in the house. I mean, if I do something Misty normally does, I do feel that there probably should be an award ceremony at the end of it. And she's like, you just picked your socks up. That, you know, most men already do that. I'm thinking, what many of you know? Uh, men, we throw socks everywhere. You know, that's our job. And Humility. There's a hymn in our hymn book, hymn 29, has a wonderful phrase that comes at the end of the first verse. Let me, let me just read the first verse to you. Um, hymn 29, oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, bow down before him, his glory proclaim, proclaim with gold of obedience and incense of lowliness, of humility, kneel and adore him. The Lord is his name. What a wonderful poetic summary. Worship him in the beauty of holiness. We come before him proclaiming his glory, not our significance. And with the gold of obedience and the incense, that sweet, pleasing aroma rising up from our life. The incense of uh, lowliness, of humility. So when we talk about doing things as unto the Lord that are worship. We want to be careful. Let me sum it up. For a Christian, the common things of life, which are appropriate for you to do, are able to be done with the worth of your God in mind, done for his pleasure, done for his honor. You want other people to see God in the way that you live. Done with the awareness of God's greatness and goodness and the fact that all you are and all you have is his. Now, let's look at some specific examples. And I mentioned all those ingredients that are kind of at the heart of offering something to God because I don't want you to think that just because Paul says, now offer yourselves as living sacrifices, therefore everything a Christian does is automatically thought of by God as worship. Nor do I want you to think that when you go to a New Testament or pardon me, or an Old Testament passage, that if it doesn't say worship or use worship-like words like, you know, this is pleasing to God, this is an acceptable thing to God, you know, you think, well, that's like worship, you know. It doesn't have to have worship words in the verse for it to be worship because Romans 12 has already said you can present everything 
in the life as unto the Lord, as a living sacrifice. And so we need to know what those elements are. And the Bible doesn't have to say each time. Now, this is worship. Well, let's look at a few specific passages. And I have um, just two categories, all right? One focuses in on primarily, but not solely, on the way we love primarily believers, but also unbelievers. So let me give you three passages. I think I have three passages. If you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians 5. I'll give you the most general first, because the statement that it gives just forms a great entrance to the whole category. Walking in love with other believers and unbelievers is seen by the Father as an expression of his worth, your love to him, your humility before him, or worship. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Always the Bible gives the motivation there. As children that are presently being loved by the uncreated God. And walk in love. So imitate God as beloved children. Walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Okay, we'll stop. Imitating God as children who are loved by that God. He's my father. I want to be like the father who is constantly pouring a river of unexpected kindness toward me in Christ. And that means I'm going to want to walk or conduct myself in all the little tiny choices of life. Most of them don't appear significant. Walk in love. Jesus being the great pattern. He loved you. He gave himself for you. And the Father saw his loving you at a terrible cost. And that, just, that doesn't just include the cross, but all of his loving you. The Father sees that his Son loving you, he sees that as a pleasing act of worship, like incense and aroma arising from the sacrifice acceptable, pleasing to the Father. So the implication is Christian, imitate God, walk in love just as Christ did. So follow Christ's pattern and our walking in love and giving of ourselves for others will also, like Christ's, will also be seen as a fragrant aroma, as incense. So when we love other believers, whether it's easy or difficult at the moment, but our choice is to give myself for them, to lay my rights down for their good, to love them in concrete ways. The Father, the triune God, looks at that, and he smells that Christ-like aroma, and he's pleased. It's worship. Look at verse 3 and 4. Some specifics that follow may not be what you expect. But, he says, now he's going to give the opposite. Now, this is not worship, but immorality or any impurity or greed. 
must not even be named among you. Don't even live in a way that people might rightly accuse you of these, as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk, you know, uh, sinfully silly, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting. They don't match the Christian life, but rather giving of thanks. So after saying walk in love, like Christ, that was a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Father. Our lives can be that way, but you're going to have to remove or guard yourselves against certain things because if some, some of these things get into the life, then the life will not smell like a pleasing sacrifice, but it becomes, you know, disgusting. It stinks to God, and that would be immorality, impurity, Greed, carelessly speaking to each other from those kinds of attitudes, those kind of fountains, damaging each other. So, love, loving believers by what you guard against in your dealing with believers, that's worship. Let me show you another passage, and it fleshes it out more, Romans 12. Right after saying that you are to be a living sacrifice, then the apostle in verse three starts to mention a number of things that would be included in you living a life where you are consecrating or dedicating everything to God. Well, what does that look like? Is it monks and nuns? You know, are we locked away in little cells, reading our Bibles, listening to Christian music? No. He mentions how we interact with each other primarily. Then he also mentions the world. Look at verse three. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment <clears throat> as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For, he explains that, for just as we have many members of one body, we have fingers, toes, ears, eyelids, and they don't all have the same function, so we who are many are all one body in Christ, and individually we're members of another, we're connected to each other. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, God's given us different gifts, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. And then he goes on to explain some of those. So, Paul's talking to a church that's struggling. The Roman Christians were struggling with the Jewish-Gentile divide, the cultural clash. And so he starts off by saying, okay, you are to be a living sacrifice, a sweet aroma to God, pleasing. Number one, when you sit down to other, next to other people that aren't just like you in church, you are not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to. You are just one part of the body, and they are one part of the body, and you are connected with a living connection, but no one part of the body is more significant than the other. And so he talks about serving, and let's pick up with verse seven, uh, verse six, halfway through. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, and he's just explaining, this is how... You are to live this out, and this is all part of the living sacrifice. But then in verse 9, he says a general statement, 
Let love be without hypocrisy. No masks. Abhor what is evil. Hate it. Cling. Like a like newlywed couple. Cling to what is good, what is pure. That's part of a living sacrifice. Look at verse 10. Do you think of this as part of worship? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another. When you consider other believers, consider them in a way that you prefer them to yourself. They are of more importance to you than you are. That's part of worship. That's part of a living sacrifice. In honor, then he says, not lagging, verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence. That's part of a life of worship. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So while you are... All of these things have to do with how you're relating to other believers. It is ultimately the Lord that we are all aiming this toward. Rejoicing in hope. That's part of worship. Being gloomy and despairing is not helpful. It's not pleasing to the Lord when he's given you so much. Persevering in tribulation. That's part of worship. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. How you invite people into your life and treat them. If it's done so that you will appear to be very Christian, it's not offered to the Lord. But if it's done for love of the person, for love of their God, your God, it's worship. That includes everything that goes into hospitality. That includes vacuuming, dusting, cooking, serving, cleaning. That includes sitting down from each other and choosing to talk about things that Christians can talk about instead of just, you know, shooting from the hip and just talking about things that the world could talk about. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. That's also a part of a life of worship. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. It doesn't matter if they're a believer or not. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You won't be able to be at peace with all men because you love the Lord. But as much as lies within your ability, you be at peace. Give no one any legitimate reason to be offended. That is all an expression of worship. Turn to Colossians 3, verse 12. Here's another passage. Colossians 3, verse 12. 13, 14, and then we'll jump to verse 17. Here again, we have the way we treat other Christians. But in Colossians 3, there's a different flavor. The issue is not, don't be proud. Realize that you all have a part. We all work together. We're all part of one body. In Colossians 3, what do we do when there are struggles within the body and there are genuine offenses. Verse 12, this is worship. So as those who have been chosen of God, again, here's the fuel, holy, separated, beloved. That's you? Okay. Then you have enough reason to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
What's he talking about? Verse 13, bearing with one another. He's talking about in your relationships within the church. Bearing with one another. Forgiving each other. Look at this expression of a life of worship. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That's a life of worship. Beyond all these things, he says, put on love. Clothe your life with love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now jump all the way down to verse 17 because this sums it up. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name, you know, as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. All of that is worship. It shouldn't surprise us for God to speak this way because it is our Lord who said on the day of judgment, he will say to people, you, you didn't visit me. You didn't, you know, you didn't, you weren't concerned for my needs. You didn't do this. You didn't do this. And they say, Lord, when were you sick? When were you in prison? And he says, well, when you didn't do it to the least of my Brethren of the Christians, you didn't do it to me. And then the Christians, you did this. You did meet my needs. You did care about me. And they say, when were you sick and in prison? We don't ever remember doing anything like that for you. Well, you did it to the least of my brethren. And in as much as you did that, you did it unto me. Christ identifies with his people so closely that how we are responding to them is really how we are responding to him. Well, that's one giant category. Let me give you a second category. Laying down your rights in gray areas or in areas of conscience. That's probably a better description. Areas where you have a right to something, but for the sake of someone else's good, for the sake of God's honor, for the pleasure of God, you lay your preferences down. You put them beneath the preference of the other person. Let me say before I read the passage, it's going to be 1 Corinthians 10. We are not ever told that we are allowed out of love for a person to lay God's preferences down so that that person's preferences can be, you know, exalted. Okay, you want me to act a certain way in my marriage. My kids want me to let them do certain things. I think that being a Christian, I, I would want to do that. They want me to affirm something that the Bible doesn't affirm. Maybe I should do that. I mean, that sounds loving. It is not. We do not lay God's rights down so that people can feel affirmed. But you lay your rights down, your preferences. Don't confuse the two. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 23. Paul is dealing with an issue that he's had to deal with a lot of times. He deals with it here, again in Romans 14. I'll read one verse from there. But in 1 Corinthians 10, he's dealing with this whole issue. And though this is a specific example, it's the principle that's so beneficial. In areas of lawful choices, I, I am in Christ. I am legitimately free to do this. But if I do this, it damages this person next to me. Therefore... I will not do this. All things are lawful, he says in verse 23. But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. He's not saying every single thing is awful, lawful. 
some of it's awful. But he's talking about the issue of eating meat that was once sacrificed to an idol. And then the temples throughout the Roman world, they would take the meat sacrificed to them. You know, the priest would have some of it for their supper, but then they could take it to the market and they would sell it in the market and support the temples there. And you would go to a market. You wouldn't know if the meat was ever sold from a temple or ever offered to a false god. And Paul said some believers were really bothered that people were eating meat that was bought in a market. I mean, that could have been offered to a false god. What are you? You support idol worship? Well, no. And others said it doesn't matter. False gods don't really exist. It, the, the meat belongs to the living God. And it doesn't matter what those people did with it. We eat it with thankfulness to God. So Paul talks about how to handle this problem. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. That's the basic rule, love. Don't seek your own good, seek the good of the person next to you. Whether they're Christian or not, be thoughtful. That's worship. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Okay, you're free to do that. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, you know, to have supper with them, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions um, for conscience sake. Verse 28, but if anyone says to you, this meat, this is meat sacrificed to idols. You know, so it's, a, it's an unbeliever. They say, how you like your steak? It's good, isn't it? It's because it was offered to my God. And, and that's, I love that meat that's offered to, you know, to Zeus or whoever. And so if you find out that they are making a big deal of the fact that it was offered to idols, he says, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. So if they say, man, you know, I'm so thankful to Zeus that we got this meat from his temple, then you have to spit it out and say, Zeus is a fraud, guys. I don't want anything that you think is coming from Zeus. It's not really coming from their gods. It's really coming from the true God who owns everything. But they don't understand that. And if you sit with them and eat meat sacrificed to idols, you will confuse them. Why are these Christians who say they don't believe in the gods suddenly eating the stuff that comes from the gods? So for the sake of that person's soul and for a clear conscience, just abstain. He says, I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man. So that, you know, so you won't confuse him for why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Now, here again is the general principle. Verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That guides your choice. That's why sometimes you eat and sometimes you don't. In our day, we would say that's why sometimes I might feel free to drink uh, alcohol and other times I, I don't. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. That is so telling. It's not just the Christians. Don't offend the Jews, the unbelieving Jews. Don't offend the unbelieving Greeks. Don't confuse them by your choices. Lay down your preferences. They don't understand Christianity. So make sure your choices don't misrepresent Christ to these people. It will cost you 
but it's worth it. And do not damage God's people by your freedom. Then he goes on to say, just as I also please all men and all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Same concept. I, be, I become all things to all men so that by any means they might be saved. The goal is not, Paul is not saying, I adjust my morality to whoever's sitting in front of me. Remember, I don't lay God's commands down under their preferences. But in areas of personal preference where I have freedom, I gladly adjust my personal freedoms so as to do them good. Their good is more important than getting what I want. In Romans 14, 18, Paul gives the same basic discussion with a few different details, but that verse sums it up this way. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Now, let's close this down. We want to be very practical. It's great to have general concepts. Okay, here the, you know, thankfulness, humility, love, a Christian, offering it to God for God's pleasure, for God's glory. That's great. But the Bible becomes so very specific, and I find that I live in the realm of good intentions if I don't become specific. I have to be specific, and I find it very hard to be specific. I tell myself, I'm so busy. I read, you know, I read 1 Corinthians 10 yesterday, and I meant to be very specific in the way that I lived, but then something happened today, and I had to, you know, devote all my thoughts to this issue, and I never got back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I kind of tell myself, I probably, I think I did everything God wanted me to do, but what if I didn't? If you have a spouse who's a Christian, if you have a good friend who's a Christian, you know, an older sibling that's a Christian, a person in the church, you know, that you can really rely on, why not say to them, I'm really working through Colossians 3. I'm looking at the way that God says to treat people in the church, especially those, you know, who offend or, you know, meaning to offend or not meaning to offend. It doesn't matter. I have felt the offense. Now, how do I devote my life to Christ? Well, Colossians 3 explains it, and I'm asking my friend to hold me accountable. Would you ask me, would you just send me a text tomorrow and say, okay, what part of Colossians 3 did you apply? How did you do it? Would you ask me once a week? Whatever. And don't think that we can worship the Lord as, you know, 100 individuals. There are believers all around us in the world, but there's believers all around us, you know, when we gather together, and you know, Sunday lunch is a great chance. We get together, we just talk. If the week's been hard, we, we tend to become careless and we blah, we complain. And without you know, sledgehammering each other, you can say to each other, I know how that feels. I have been there, or maybe I'm there right now. But I remember Romans 12. I remember 1 Corinthians. I remember you know, Ephesians 5. And you have the chance of giving even this difficult thing, you can devote it to God out of love. And surely that would be a sweet gift to give to God. I think that things that are very difficult for us when we offer them to the Lord are doubly sweet 
You remember David when he went to give an, he wanted to give an offering, offer up a sacrifice to God. And so he talks to a man, you know, he's not at his house. He's, he's on this guy's property and he sees his cows and, his, and all the, you know, the, uh, the cart and everything. And he says, hey, let me buy those cows and that cart from you because I want to offer, I want to offer your cows as a sacrifice. I'll buy them from you though. And the man's like, whoa, you're King David. You could just have it. And David's statement is what? I will offer the Lord nothing that, that costs me. I don't want to Lord, offer the Lord anything that costs me nothing. I want, I want to pay for it. Not earning God's love, but I want. I don't mind the cost. Love doesn't mind the cost. When I was uh, engaged, to, before I was engaged to Misty, you know, I was thinking about uh, what ring am I going to get as an engagement ring? So I started looking around. And I was in seminary. And I made about... $125 a week. Now, I lived with Clyde Cranford, who he paid for all of our food, and he, he let me live there free. So that helped. But I still had gas, and I still had books and other things. And so I'm looking, and I'm thinking, oh, it's going to take forever. I found this ring from the Victorian period, like the 1850s, and I liked it. And it wasn't really very expensive compared to other rings, but it was, you know, it took about a month's paychecks if I didn't spend them anywhere else to pay, to pay for the ring. And so I remember feeling tempted. Clyde was always helping me out. Like, maybe Clyde will help me out. So he'll help me get this ring. And then like, I'll, then I'll be able to give it to Misty earlier because I want to be, be engaged now. And, and so I was talking to Clyde about the price. And he, I think he saw where we were heading. He said, John, it'll be much better. It'll be much sweeter if you work and wait and work and save and you do it all yourself. And he was right. To walk alongside each other and, and when another believer is kind of lost sight of this issue of a life of worship, to say to them, I know it's costly. It is not easy, but it is real. You can give this as an expression of love. You can go through this hard time in the right way for the pleasure and honor of God. And that is something that when you see him face to face at the end, when we see Christ, it will not be a small matter that we offered the difficult present circumstance to him as worship. Well, I think we'll just pray and be dismissed. Father, we thank you for the realities that we never thought of. God, we, we knew coming to Christ would wash us. We knew it would lead to us being without guilt and shame and free from the fear of condemnation. But God, we never thought it would make it so that all of life could have value and that we could have the delight of offering simple, ordinary things, common things. And they offered to you, they become uncommon. So thank you, Father, for giving us the chance not of paying you back, but of having some way as children to give out of love and gratitude to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have a good week.